like a trusted turnout jacket you've had for years. Flex 7 outer shell fabric delivers a perfectly broken-in feel on the very first wear. Flexible, comfortable, and powered with the strength of enforced technology, Flex 7 outer shell fabric is made to move. To learn more, visit tenkatafabrics.com slash flex7. Flex 7, powered by enforced technology. Only from Tenkata Protective Fabrics. Seconds count when responding to an emergency. Minutes save count when documenting your day. Emergency networking makes records management easier and faster with its Fire and EMS solution. User-friendly, complete online and offline functionality, highly customizable, all at an affordable price. For more information, please visit emergencynetworking.com. Welcome, everybody, to uh, <laughs> our second new formatted uh, podcast w- with video. It's a little bit different for us, so we're all still learning. Our, uh, our our guy that usually handles all that part is an officer. We're doing this uh, video via Zoom, and we got a guy driving, and we've got – hopefully my laptop doesn't uh, give me the blue screen of death anymore this week. So a few little issues here, but I want to welcome everybody um, – Generation Engine Podcast. We've been having a great time with this for quite a while now and super excited uh, about our guests, super excited to kind of get this conversation going again that we started uh, a while back on uh, mid-rise ops and some different challenges. And we're really kind of focused where we we talked to uh, Jimmy Davis up in the you know great white north of Chicago. This time we're heading way down south with our guest tonight, and we'll let him introduce himself here everybody in just a minute so uh, as, as always i'll introduce myself first my name is todd edwards 31 years city of atlanta uh retired out and do a little part-time work here and there and do a lot of teaching in different places a lot of teaching with row ed i've had the distinct uh, uh just a true honor and privilege to share um share the room with our guests tonight and be in be in his presence while teaching so i'm excited to have him on board so i'll let uh captain uh Anthony Rowett introduced himself. Anthony Rowett, a captain with Mobile Fire Rescue Department, Mobile, Alabama. Started out as a volunteer, about three years as a volunteer in northern New Jersey and 15 years down here. Pretty close to our guest there, only a couple hours away. Uh, and then traveling a bunch with Todd and our guest as well to get to teach him every once in a while, too. Awesome. Yeah, so so I'm, gonna, yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead, D. You go ahead and introduce it- yourself to everybody and uh, excited to have you, brother. Yeah, I'm stoked to be here. Hopefully, I won't wreck my truck on the way home <laughs> from my new job um, in the training division for the South Walton Fire Department. But DJ Stone, I am from what we call the 850 area of Florida, Pensacola to Tallahassee. Um, previously served at City of Fort Walton Beach for 22 years alongside my brother, who was a battalion that retired from there. I took an early retirement after 22 years to embark on my new endeavor in a fire district just east of here along the 30A stretch of beach. Some of your viewers, listeners may know where that area is, like east of Destin. Um, so anyway, very affluent area. I went from a two-station, somewhat urban suburban department to a 
uh, five station, 10 apparatus, much larger job for me on this side of the world. So, but it's been really good. I'm in the training division, been there two months, right at two months now, and just kind of getting comfortable with everything and figuring it out. But so far, so good. Yeah. Great, great. And, and again, thank you so much for uh, taking uh, some of your drive time and uh, this evening to kind of share some knowledge and information. Uh, I don't want I don't want to go too far out of this, man. I don't want us uh, as a as a team tonight, and and for the our fire family throughout the country, for us all, just kind of take a uh, just a second and and just recognize what our brothers and sisters and the people of Maui are going through right now. Um, I've seen just countless videos. I've seen fire apparatus burned up. I thought one of the most intriguing stories I saw in the news the other morning. They were interviewing uh, some of the firefighters and why they were fighting the fire. One one of the uh, firefighters described how she was fighting the fire on one side of the street and her house was burning to the ground on the other side of the street. Wow. And that story has been repeated over and over with these members uh, losing their entire homes and all their belongings. Some of them, I'm, I'm sure, have suffered loss of friends and so uh, again, the, the you know the brotherhoods out there, and it, I think it's uh, important that we uh, always remember that it's not just our little corners of the world, but the fire service is a lot bigger place. And uh, uh, my prayers for all the brothers and sisters and all the people going through that tragedy over there in Hawaii right now. Yeah, it's terrible. So, yeah, it, it it's one of those things. I guess uh, I'd never thought of. Well, I saw the volcanoes. I never thought about wildland. Obviously, there's plenty of vegetation in the Hawaiian island chain, but I just never thought we would see that kind of devastation, you know, in in that environment, in that atmosphere. So be very interesting from a fire service standpoint um, to kind of learn more and more about that and their operations. And I think there'll be a lot of lessons learned from from the whole scenario, too. Um David, I want to I want to go back on something real quick, and I and just so our viewers know, and if you could kind of you know maybe speak just briefly about your um, your class, uh, the anatomy of the rescue that you and Sham put together some time ago, and you've been blessed to present that at FDIC a few years back. I know you do another version, a brand new version of it on your own as well. But uh, I want our I want everybody listening and watching to to kind of hear about that program as well because even though it's not about mid-rise per se uh i i think it's still something that um i, I just want to give you the opportunity to share about that class if anybody's interested in reaching out to you thank you i appreciate it and just found out yesterday got the nod for fdic which is just tremendous you guys are all pros i'm just this dude on the side over here you know <laughs> who's been a couple times so i'm extremely excited about taking this program up there yeah, so initially the program Anatomy of a Rescue was based off of two separate calls me and my brother had in the same department, and we were both on the job at the same time, and they were happened to be video-documented rescues uh, on both of our ends. One was on an end for me was the end user. I was a company officer involved on a grab out of a, a vacant structure of a woman and um, it was all captured on film. And then my brother's was from the battalion chief perspective uh, of a 
I would maybe describe it as an unintentional grab, but out of discipline of his companies, they discovered this lady in an apartment complex where they worked in bedroom fire. And that class, it was, we, we both created it out of probably the highly unique manner of which it developed. Like what are the chances of two brothers on the job in the same small town department in the middle of like nowhere, really uh, of, of no reputable name, having two successful grabs, both documented, both from differing kind of officer perspectives. So that class was based on that conversation between me and him, our lessons learned, the takeaways, those kind of things and things that have worked for us. So out of that, as, as we move forward, people would want to hear the presentation, but my brother retired from my job and is an operations chief at another job, uh, another department in Midway between Pensacola and Fort Walton Beach. And so what that meant was he went to a 40 hour week and it was a bit more difficult for us to travel and do that class. It was, it was a high honor for me to be able to teach with my brother. He does this stuff all the time. And it was just a, a very cool experience. Anyways, we were able to present at FDIC. It was, it was totally awesome. Um, in the request of getting to share that class, we just weren't able to do it. So that pushed right. me and, and I, on my brother's advice to, hey, man, go ahead and develop this, develop it into something that I could teach on my own because he just wasn't as mobile. Well, between that time, probably two years had trans, you know, had gone by. And within those two years, crazy enough, in this very small stretch of suburban area that we live in, I once again had another opportunity to be a part of a grab on my shift from the engine company on the north end of the city that I worked. And now I was in the battalion position coming as a secondary battalion. And they were the first two company that grabbed a kid off the second floor of a townhome, um, an autistic kid, actually. And uh, it, a lot of unique circumstances revolved around that. Again, was captured on video, uh, which was crazy. Uh, not only that, um, another one happened in Navarre, the town that I live in, and it was an incredible video capture of Navarre's company under the leadership of Sean Toller, a captain there, uh, made a grab of a toddler out of a heavy fire situation in a trailer house. And it was just, you know, crazy lessons to take away from that. And then finally, Kurt has been sitting for a couple of years on a tremendous VES grab from Ladder 12. And I got permission from him to utilize that in my program. Um, all those calls, I sort of do a shallow dive, not a deep dive, but a quick brush up against all of the lessons learned. Uh, we review the footage. We talk about what was done right and what was done wrong. And a little bit of what I call takeaways in the program, which everyone is going to get something different out of the video they watch, right? And mm -hmm. all I'm doing is sharing my perspective of, hey, what did DJ Stone get out of it? And it's more or less a conversational format. And I, I find it super fun to share. It's sort of organic. Things change each time I present it. And the footage speaks for itself. Um, but anyways, there's a few other details of the program. I, 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 think it's, I think it's good. I think it's relatively unique. And it's not something that I'm sharing of someone else's experiences. You know, I have two of my own and then two of my very close uh, friends and, and people that I work with in the panhandle and sharing their experiences. I just feel honored to be able to kind of push that forward. And the fact is you guys know this. I mean, you, 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 you know, you teach all around the country. These 
types of rescues and things are happening every single day and they're going undocumented. And nobody's other than a short blip really talking about it because it's our job. Um, so I just take this opportunity to do a class on a few things that have happened here. Because if it can, I feel like this, if it could happen here in suburban America, small town America, it is certainly going to happen anywhere else, right? Um, and it happens all the time in places like Mobile and Atlanta, no doubt about it. Um, but that doesn't mean that we can't any, be any less prepared because maybe we don't have the staffing, the size of the department, you know, insert excuse. We really don't have an excuse. So one thing the public wants us to do well is search and extinguishment. So we have that sort of obligation to get better at it. And hopefully people take something out of the program that might inspire or reinforce what they already know. Yeah, and I and I wanted to tell you, I you know one of the things when I was writing some notes down earlier today, I wanted to kind of venture into that because I think one of the <laughs> one of the key things you said right that right out of the beginning you talked about the discipline of your brother's companies, but I always relate that when I when I show your video from the vacant house grab, and I use it not just in search classes but in leadership classes and the discipline that you guys had long before that rescue ever yes. occurred by training on VES, talking about VES, looking at the rescue you made, and then go, damn, we could have done this, this, and this better. Yes. And I love sharing that part of your story because most of the American Fire Service is Fort Walton Beach, Navarre, uh, South Walton Fire District. That's the majority of the American Fire Service, one, two, three, five, seven stations. It's not a, there's not a whole lot of Houston's and FDNY's and Boston's of Chicago's. The majority is, is, you know, what we're talking about right now. And the, uh, discipline, the discipline factor I love. I, I love using that word about being disciplined on the fire ground. I, I, I love that we got a few minutes into that, uh, DJ. So let, let me, um, let, let me kind of bring us on topic, uh, for our guys who have listened, we we had uh, we did have Jimmy on uh, recently, and we did we had a pretty great in depth, pretty deep conversation about mid rise operations. And the reason I'm, we're bringing this topic back around, and this is going to be a different perspective, because mid rise fires actually are different fires in different parts of the country, and one of the main challenges that. Uh, Chief Stone faces and the entire section he's talking about that 805 area is the wind factor. So I kind of want to get into that uh, right out the gate with you. And I know you've been to those fires. I've seen ungodly videos from fires from 805 of that wind driven coming off the water. And now you add in a five story hotel with fire on fire on, on a couple floors. So what are some things you guys are talking about when we talk about that wind driven effect, not just on the coast, but in general, I, I guess where I'm kind of going with that, DJ. So you, that's one of the things that I put down to talk about. Wind is a factor every day along the coast. People tend to forget anything over about 10 to 15 knots sustained, you know, 15 miles an hour or so. It's it's going to impact your operations, especially if we're downwind from that. So a lot of the coastal mid-rises that we have here, a lot of the older ones are exterior balconies. The newer ones are interior. Um, on the older ones, what the challenge we face, the wind coming off the Gulf, is even though it's a concrete oven, basically, a box, and most of the buildings are pretty well protected along the coast as far as sprinklers are concerned. 
and automatic closing doors and that sort of thing. Um, wind is an absolute effect if it's if the, if the window is open to in which the direction the wind is blowing into, meaning for us, it would be the Gulf side. Uh, like to, I would say every day this summer, every afternoon, we're getting at least 15 to 20 mile an hour west southwest winds right into these buildings. Um, it's extremely important in that what sort of recon we're doing and how are we closing the door, essentially? How, how are we isolating whatever we're working up against? Because we are, we are not staffed and we don't have enough resources to combat a wind-driven fire. But that's extremely important in our approach and any of us along the Gulf Coast here to be aware of which direction that wind is coming from. And really, it's not even a coastal thing I would suggest. I would suggest if you live anywhere in the Midwest or in the quarter where cold fronts are coming and going, you're going to get directional wind changes every other day. I just so happen to pay attention to it because I surf, and that's just the life of a surfer on the Gulf is you pay attention to wind patterns. But every day when I came into work, that's one of the things that I would put on our um, roster board is wind direction and uh, wind speed. You know, it's something that I think everybody that lives in an area prone to wind direction change needs to be conscious of. And FDNY showed us years ago that if they can't overcome a wind-driven fire, we're certainly not going to. So we have to adjust our tactics accordingly. So let me let me kind of take that with uh, Cap Rowett being, you know, pretty much different coastline, but he's on the water <laughs> than their mobile. Yeah. Are some of the things that maybe you guys have discussed or is it something that's brought up on a daily basis down there on ships or how are you guys managing, uh, you know, when you talk about these wind factors, when we talk these mid-rise type of structures? Yeah, we're, we're, uh, we're on the bay, on the bay, not all the way down on the Gulf, like, like DJ's talking about, but we've always got that consistent wind, especially our run area downtown sits right on the bay. So we're constantly dealing with it. Uh, one of those things, reality, like you heard the stories, how bad some of the fires went, but what made it real for a lot of us was walking through a building while it was being built. And uh, they had just put all the windows and doors in. They were painting inside, and it was a uh, pedestal construction building, uh, so five stories total. We were only on the third floor walking, and they had a window open right across from the uh, from the door to the apartment, and it was right on the bay side. When we went we went to open the door, we, we had to, like, shove the door open to get in, and as soon as we let go, the wind slammed it closed. And that, that's what made it real for us, that even these low, only on the third floor, we always talked about it in the taller buildings, but even on that third floor, that it literally slammed that door closed from a window being open. Uh, so that really opened up our eyes to just how many buildings it was going to impact. Like, it wasn't just talk anymore. It made it a real experience. Uh, our guys, it's something that they leave up to the company officers to speak about with their men. Uh, but what we typically do is everyone gets taught the flags right outside the that engine bay doors. So when you pull out, you always look up at the flag. So for us, it's right to our right. When we pull out, you look at the flag and see which way it's going. Is it laying down? Is it is it flapping in the wind? Is it straight out? In which direction? So you kind of know. Uh, we're Especially, uh, you know, working hurricanes and stuff like that, obviously that changes. Mm -hmm. But uh, but that, that, that makes a, a big game time changer right there when you know you have very, very consistent, strong winds that are way above the normal. Uh, so it's obviously a huge concern there where we're getting a lot of updates and stuff like that. But on a day-to-day -day basis, it's up to the company officers. We do teach everybody to look at the flag, but as far as discussing it with 
with the members or putting it on a on a duty board or on a, a, a riding sheet that you go over with people. Um, like DJ was talking about, it was he did it himself. It's kind of something we do as a at a company officer level. I'll take awesome. it even yeah, a step it, further. Uh, you know, we we even I'll even mention it when I was on battalion on the radio. Like if we're coming in, I'll just say words like wind driven to put it on people's minds. And I would mm-hmm. remind the crews, hey, listen, you gotta think about a different direction. Don't park downwind. Don't stretch a line to the front door like a robot. If there's a heavy wind on it, you may have to think about flanking it somehow or another. Maybe we're dropping two lines on the ground and one's getting by the door, one's getting on the upwind of the side. Um of the building and trying to introduce water to try to hold it in place, you know, before we can get a line up to it and get it in service. Yeah. I, I think again, it's going to be on the wind driven side of things. It's going to be very situationally driven, but I think the, the main takeaway that I think I want people who are listening to this to really look at is don't let that slip off your radar during your size up procedures as you're going throughout the day and, uh, size up is an ongoing process. It shouldn't be just at the side, time of the alarm, but really throughout the course of the shift. Because as the shift changes, weather patterns change. It may have been 70 and sunny at 9 a.m. And now it's 42 and there's a 30 mile an hour steady wind blowing throughout your city or your district. And that does change us. And I think something that uh, you just said, Chief, was about, you know, our tactics and how that's got to change our strategy and overall tactics sometimes. So, I'm going, <laughs> I'm going to throw out a little something here, and say I don't want to call it a test question, but it's kind of a question because uh, of my research, and I want to see what you guys think. So I want to give it to uh, Captain Rowett first. What, in your mind, or in Mobile, Alabama, or in your teachings, is considered a mid-rise building? Because I've had this question, and that's why I started getting into this. <laughs> For us, we typically, as a department, we say roughly three to seven. Uh, and, and basically, we do it based on, uh, we, we tried to say the high rises are 75 feet uh, and, and go from there as far as, as dictating uh, how we do it. A lot of our SOGs are written more, uh, not mid-rise versus high-rise operations, but stretching from the rig versus using the standpipe operation. And it doesn't really make it about um, the height of the building. It makes it about where that water is coming from. Is it coming from your rig in the street with someone pumping it, or is it coming from a standpipe system? And then how we we do those operations. Uh, When we rewrote the books, we we tried to take it to that uh, attitude of the way we wrote the SOG to not necessarily be, this is what you do with a high rise, and then break it down to what if it's on a lower floor, a higher floor, this or that. It was... This is how we operate in, in buildings. This is how we operate in taller buildings. And it's more about, are you pumping it because you stretch from the rig or did you stretch off a standpipe system? And we dictate our operations based on that differential more than anything. Of Is the system involved or are you stretching from your rig? And that's how we wrote, okay. our, wrote our SOGs was to, to limit it based more on that. That Because uh, one thing we did, if you're on uh, hooked up to a standpipe, there's no doubt about it. It's got to be a smoothbore nozzle. It's got to be the two and a quarter hose. You've got to have two engine companies assigned to that line no matter what. And so we dictated it not, oh, you're in a high-rise building, but no, or mid-rise building or whatever floor it was, it was did you operate from the system or did you stretch from the rig? The same building that we absolutely mandate two and a quarter hose, two engine companies on it, 
if you hooked up to the standpipe system, if you stretch from the rig and it's an apartment building, it's contained to the apartment, and you can use your long line and reach it, you can use that leader line and you actually, you know, you're going into that apartment with the inch and three quarter line. And that's how we tried to dictate it was more based on system involvement versus rig involvement. Okay. Same thing for uh, you, Chief. Same question. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that, like Anthony said, that technically most of the time, right, it's three to seven or so. And my new organization, it's interesting. I've just had this conversation with the operations chief. They're defining it as we speak. And we were just discussing what that definition is. I'll just tell you what my opinion is. My old organization didn't necessarily have an SOG outlining it, but it was just understood. And it was almost exactly what Anthony said. We, we stretched off the, the rig. My, my thing personally as a battalion was anything that was four stories and below where we may go over the rail. It's an exterior rail job. Right. And so a lot of factors depend on that, but that was a general sort of standing rule for us. But I would say, I mean, mid-rise to me would be anything that you're going to be potentially raising a line to. So five stories and less, probably more like four and less would be constitute a mid-rise. Anything above that, in my opinion, it gets a little bit sketchy. And it's not like we're doing it all the time, but I do know and I do recall, and Todd, you probably recall, and you, Anthony, probably recall, a gentleman broke his arm a few years ago at Atrock when the three-inch that was stretched as a, a vertical standpipe. I forget what floor it was, like sixth or seventh, right? Seventh, eighth, maybe? Something uh, loose. And yeah. it's extreme, extreme, yeah, extremely dangerous um, situation if it's not tied off and secured appropriately. Not to say not to do it, but there's a little bit more risk when you're going over four and five stories, in my opinion. So I, I would qualify it personally in the five story or less would be a mid rise. When I say mid rise, I think three stories, four stories up to okay. five. Yeah. And the reason is uh, the reason I'm throwing that out there is one, if you look at, there's a different definition by different groups. Other ones won't define it at all. Uh, National Fire Spring Association just looks at everything at 75 feet rule. If it's 75 feet or above, it's considered a high rise. Yeah. So that's how they look at it from, you know, what's got to be sprinkler codes and all that. And I'm more in line with you guys. I typically will say three to six um, is a mid-rise type of structure. I will only do vertical standpipe and my, and again, it's my opinion up to six max. I do. I would be very leery about doing an outside stretch over six. Not saying you can't do it, but I'll think if we're going to be training on these things, we got to start, exploring and working on and say what what is considered the safety factor um all for all involved and you're starting to look at staffing uh and how much how much time that's going to take to set that up versus actually hitting the standpipe so do you guys have a hard fast rule to say hey if it's from six up we're going to hit the system or from seven up you guys have that have a hard fast rule we don't, we don't or, have anything set in yeah. writing that says which floor you have to stretch uh, starting off the standpipe. Uh, we basically say, like, from the third floor and above, it becomes the officer's discretion, typically one, two, or the basement, uh, no matter what they're stretching yeah. from the rig. But from the third, it becomes officer's discretion. And then uh, from there, we don't have anything in writing. It's what that, what that officer decides. 
Same here, to my knowledge, not a lot in writing, but I would follow the same general path. All right. Hey, I'm going, I got to step away from real, really quick. I'm going to take my video, row, keep it rolling. Can you still hear me? Yeah, we can still hear you. Okay, keep it rolling. All right. DJ, you started to freeze up. You got anything else you want to point Anyway, yeah. Yeah, so for me, when I'm thinking mid-rise, a lot of our buildings were exterior balcony buildings. And so in light of that, I'm thinking, what can I stretch? Just like you said, right off my rig, right over the rail. You know, rail depending, all kinds of things depending. But but that that for me is going to be a go-to. Uh, even more so than that, I'm thinking of an enclosed hallway like La Quinta Inn where I used to work. We knew where the hallway locations on the outside of the building were. So the truck would come in, would go investigate, and the engine would stand by at one of those pipes just sort of in ready position, right? Ready to stretch right up that stairwell. Because if we could avoid the pipe, we would, and we do. But I mean, I, I think I'd agree with you. When we're getting over four or five, you know, on an interior stairwell situation and even exterior, we're going to start considering um, the standpipe. But it's kind of hard to say, isn't it? There's a lot yeah. of factors yeah, that really go factors into that decision. Like, and we say that more towards the high rise buildings. Like if it's an apartment building, like we were training one for our filming some vertical stretch videos for our tactical training unit today on rope stretches, well hole stretches, and all that. And we were in a, a six story, just old tenement style building. We'll rope stretch everywhere in that building, uh, and it doesn't it doesn't have a standpipe. It's not an option. So uh, wrapping the stairs is not a good option, but we can rope stretch it very easily. So. I would say, you know, it's very dependent on situation, on the building, things like that. So one thing when you were talking that you talked about, like, the, you knew where the hallways was. One thing I think is really um, unique to anyone that works in an area like you have, the beach, is you have open air balcony apart of uh, motels and all that. Yeah. But one side is the beach. It doesn't have that rig access. So how much, right. how much of that was... Uh, did you have figured out through pre-planning already and how you were going to do it as far as where are you going to use the system? Where are you going to stretch? You know, knowing if you were going to have to extend a line to have longer, you guys probably used the gust impact thing in the 850. Uh, but how much of that was, was pre-planned already decided and how much did that impact the way you guys trained for those buildings to really have a plan for that beach side where you don't have the access to get back there with the rig? For us in Fort Walton Beach, um, we weren't exactly on the beach. We ran with a mutual aid department, Okaloosa right. Island. But I will I say all, all we, you guys ran together. So, yeah. So even with that being said, we worked very well with Okaloosa Island. We knew their plan. They very much had a plan. That is the key to success in um, these sort of circumstances. Any of our buildings that were on the bay, like where you're at, it's the same kind of scenario. And we can't get around to the back. Yeah, we abs pre-plan. I cannot emphasize enough the pre-plan for these buildings, but it can't be this convoluted, complicated thing where we go out onto the pre-plan and we, where we're going to do a company walk around of a building and then we end up conversating about things that don't matter. In my opinion, it has to be so simple it could be thought of in 10 seconds or less. Hey, it's A or it's B. And if it's C, maybe we're going to talk about it. So uh, pre-plan was absolutely critical in the buildings I'm thinking of that we ran. And most. And so here's an example of a simple pre-plan. If it is an exterior balcony, number one is going to be a stretch over the over the balcony. 
off the rig first. If that doesn't work, then it's a rope stretch. And it's going to be a rope stretch with a Gustin pack, like you said, or whatever bundle right. you may have. We use the Gustin pack bundle, and that worked really well for us. Or maybe it's a high rise. It depends. But that would be an example of just having that pre-plan and just keeping it really simple. Because them, it's house fires in general are dynamic enough. When we put them up two, three, four, five stories, and now you're threatening floors above an apartment adjacent, or it's an enclosed hallway where, you, where maybe it's not the fire, it's the smoke that you're concerned about. You know, there's a ton of other factors. The, the As you know, as you well know, Anthony, you've probably ran a lot more than we ever have on the enclosed hallway bit. You have a lot of other concerns. Um, and we got to keep it simple for our nozzle firefighters and other members to kind of think independently in those moments while you're collecting all that data. Yeah. Um, yeah. And going back to that, like you're talking enclosed, I mean, going back to last year, we had one in it. Uh, it's in a high rise building. It's right across the street from the firehouse, but uh, in a 12 story building, but the fire was on seven uh, came in. They were saying, Oh, it's nothing to it. And it turns out, you know, we get up there, the sprinkler water's just pouring out around the door. And it, it, it pretty yeah. much had it controlled. Yeah. But even though that building had a well hole, going, like it said seventh floor, we could have easily stretched well to the seventh floor and, and done a well stretch there. But uh, we know that building, like we train in that building religiously. We were in that building. That's another building we're yeah. in today filming yeah. videos, well hole stretching. Uh, and we used a standpipe there. Uh, and, and there was a grab made and the whole thing and everything worked out. Great, but they were hooking up off that uh, sixth floor standpipe, and that was just kind of the go-to, you know, for that building. And uh, yeah, it, it wasn't even a thought about thing. The the pre-planning of it, it wasn't even uh, like department and chief driven as much as like the, the walkthroughs. We would do our walkthroughs yeah. with the chiefs that they are required to run, and they're much more, you know, the paperwork driven. They have their requirements yep. that submit in, which shifts doing the drawing, which shifts doing this, and submit it all in, and then. The companies would, hey, we're here, let's do something, and basically just talk through, like, oh, this is, Roet, this is in Three's area, tell me about the building, and we would walk through the building, what's your guys' plan here, if it's here, what are you doing, where are you going, where's the pump room, what, do both stairwells have standpipes, what, we'd walk through the building, this is what, if this was the room on fire, this is what we would do, boom, 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 everyone was on the same page, and in multiple, multiple fires in the past couple of years, uh, on upper floors of buildings, uh, even one on the 20th floor, I know it's a high rise, not a mid rise, but that's why it went, it just went like clockwork. Which stairwell we're going to be in, you yeah. know, stairwell or stairwell one, whatever, send this crew to this area. They're going to be assigned with us. And everyone knew exactly what to do, what equipment to bring, what their role was. And it wasn't just because they read it in the SOG. The companies worked on it together as a very effective drill, even though they weren't in gear stretching lines all the time. And sometimes like, that building I'm talking about, we were in today. Those two buildings there, they let us stretch lines in them religiously. We walk over there, we want to run a drill. We got a new guy. Cool, no problem. You're stretching well holes. Yeah. You're stretching down the hallways. They never give us a problem. They're like, hey, we have fires, so we've had a couple fires here. We want you guys to do yeah. exactly what you need to do. Be be good for our building. So they let us, but just companies walking through and talking about how they're going to operate together made a huge difference for us at multiple occasions where. And even one, it was a three-story, so that's a fitting directly into this, where they gave us the wrong uh, fire location in, in, in route. So they told us where it was going to be, uh, you know, the first floor. When we get in there, and we, you know, we don't we don't just stretch in right away on big, big buildings like that. This is multiple wing building, and uh, we go in and figure out where we're going 
first and then call for the stretch with how much pose we need. The nozzle yeah. man's waiting mm-hmm. on the back step, ready to go, just waiting for that call. We get in there, and the lady's like, oh, I'll take you to it. And I was like, take me to it. I thought it right down the She's like, oh, no, they asked where I, where it was. I told them where I was. It's up. It's on the third floor. So it became just, uh-huh. uh, you know, figuring out, you know, not everyone's the same. Some people don't deal with taller buildings all the time. We have detailed people in. Single-story houses is what they operate in 99.999% yep. of the time. So it also included factoring in, is he going to have a – 500 foot stretch that's also a well hole stretch that he can just jump into that fast or was it hey grab the grab the standpipe bag and the standpipe kits bring them in let's take the center stairwell reposition the rig to the rear we'll pop the door stretch it two and a half to the base of the stairs by the time we got to the third floor and lowered the coupling down the well hole they had they were standing there with the two and a half they just connected it and we were in business yep. so um, sometimes it's also evaluating who you have too um, but even there where the fire location changed, we had to move some things. We ended up, the rig started moving. Another company said, we got it. We're coming around the rear anyway. Boom. We, we lowered that hose down. Complete change of plan. But companies that worked together, even though there were some people that weren't usually in that area and it was new to them, the companies were used to working together. The companies drilled together. The companies knew the buildings together. As soon as you said, bam, something changed, they were all operating together and, and it worked like clockwork. So, it was still, you know, very quick water getting up to the third floor. And we're not real, as a department, big on coupling drops. We're more well holes and rope stretches. And we went to a coupling drop. Very few times have I done it, you know, at fires in my career. And that was one where we would always say, the well hole, the well hole, the well hole, just walk it up as you walk. Just kind of mm-hmm. conditions that day, it seemed like a better move to do. Just bring our stuff in, go up, drop it down while someone brought a line back there. That's what we did. And just like clockwork, the, the companies worked together very well. They spent time in the buildings together, burning it down in conversation. What are we doing here? Yes. Knowing knowing how much hose you need to get, you know, all the apartments in the east wing or the west wing, and things like that, or where just where the stairwells are. Not every door on that building is going into the stairs, even though they're yep. all double doors. Some of them are mechanical rooms and they look identical to stairs. So knowing what the giveaways are on the on the roof line that is over each stairwell, letting people know yep. where they are. Uh, made a huge difference so well two i think i think three things that you talk about that resonate with me um are this number one you are letting your expectations know be known as an officer as simple as that is you're just letting that expectation be known that expectation is now reinforced by conversation not only with you but other senior members and i'll ask you how much have you learned over the years listening to conversations at conferences oh yeah this is this is no different yeah we have two different sort of pre-plans we do we do the technical pre-plan and then we do the conversation and i have i feel like i've learned most through these conversations because i'm now uh doing the mental game and imagining Uh, and i do believe it's not an excuse for taking place for getting your hands on something but you know there's something that i talk about all the time the mental muscle memory we got to get out there and and engage our mind, you know, if not this, then what, right? If not this, then that, if not that, then so on. And um, that, those things that you mentioned and those expectations are, I think, key to a lot of that success. And I'll ask you this question. So we're talking about mid-rise. What changes as far as the tactics on the fourth floor? If you're not stretching from the engine, you're not going over a balcony, it's an interior 
hallway place, high-rise operations, mid-rise operations. And that, that's why what's we, the we difference? Our, I mean, that's honestly, why we wrote our SOG to be: Are you operating from the rig, or are you operating off the standby? And that's how we wrote our yeah. our books. That uh, it doesn't say this is the SOG, and I've sent you ours. Uh, you know, for yeah, high-rise yeah. buildings, it says yeah. standpipe operations. And that was, this is yes. how we operate once we hook up to the system. Uh, but I'll give you two. One thing, and it really made an impact on me, uh, probably this conversation probably two years ago. So, you know, 13 years on the job, always worked in the same firehouse for the most part, always downtown, very senior companies there. So always around these very senior guys, 30-year guys, 35-year guys, 25-year guys. They're all on every shift with just a bunch of senior guys. And one of my biggest mentors, uh, you, your good buddy that used to work in Mobile would know him very well. They were both at Mountain Station together. Just not <laughs> but uh, he, his dad worked there years and years ago. His dad came on in the 60s. And we were just, wow. Todd, you've been in our firehouse. DJ, make, might be years since you've been there. But we've got a blue table in the engine bay, right? So if we're upstairs, we congregate, we congregate around the kitchen table. If we're downstairs, it's this blue table in the engine bay. And shift change. When we come in and relieve the A shift, they're there for an hour, and it's just the two shifts talking. The, the officers, the drivers, yeah. the young guys, they're just talking. Just what'd you guys do yesterday? You know, that's gold, well, man. But this guy's got thirty plus years on the job, and he's talking about a call that he made and was alarmed. And his dad's retired, you know, retired in two thousand, and uh, they go to Waffle House all the time for breakfast. So his dad called for breakfast, and he tells his dad, and he's on speakerphone, uh, what building they just made a run in. It was just an alarm. And his dad's been retired since 2000. This is maybe two years ago. He tells us where all the hydrants are, all the FDCs, and all the stairwells. And they, wow. he still knew it that long. So that kind of like stuck in my head like, man, this guy's got photographic memory. And what it was is their standard was so high and the expectation was so high. No matter what, every time that rig rolled, if it was a fire call, and they didn't run a lot of EMS back then, they stretched. No matter what, they stretched. Yeah. They put lines on the ground. So they went to those buildings so many times, and they always hooked up to the FTC if they were the supply engine every time. And it was ingrained still. He retired in 2000. We're talking about, like, 2021. He's telling me where all the FTCs are on the That's cool. And all the hydrants surrounding it. And that, that laid the groundwork in my mind that – because I'm really big on we, – we always honor what came before us. We built it. And yeah. when I came in, it was – you know, if it's an alarm, you stage it everywhere, but not everyone was hooking into the FDC. So hearing that conversation changed that. 100% of the time, it's being hooked into the FDC, no matter what. The supply engine's hooking up to the hydrant, and they've got lines connected. We'll shut the street down. And one, like you said, yep. it builds that muscle memory for two things. One, the, the task level of actually doing it. But two, what if we're responsible for most of the high rises. What if we're already on a call? And now the company that's right. usually second in or third in to us is first in, and they're responsible for this. If we've been doing it every time, and every time they made an alarm while we were out, they learn where those hydrants are. They learn where those FDCs are. And that just really drove it home to me. This guy had been retired 20-plus years. And he could still tell you where all the FDCs and the hydrants are. And now, he's not your normal guy. Like he's very, He was very into the job. But – 20 years later to still remember that it really stuck in my brain. And you guys know the guys I work with, like it, they heard that and they were like, man, we got to, we got to uphold that standard. How did they yeah. do it? 
they're at, we're asking the, the captain with 30 plus years, who's his son. And they hooked up on every, every call they went on hose hit the ground. And these young guys were like, no, we're not, we're not letting that down. That's what we're going to do. And that raised the standard yeah. of the generation coming in now. That's multiple generations separated from this guy. And it, it impacted the way people operate. And if their mindset's there, they're doing that on the calls plus training, even just the farms, that's going to impact the day that that building's on fire. So they're going to yeah. be much more just, yeah. just bringing the, the comfort level up and that stress level down because they know where things are instead of guessing. They know they've done it before. That's going to be a big deal in these fires we don't go to them, is being able to calm everybody down and get their brain working and not just yeah. Well, I think Chief being in a training position – how how vital do you think that is from a training component that, you know, you're building this new training culture there in your department and, and all that. And how, how best can we relay that to guys and kind of start holding and building those standards from that 20 year guy that's long gone uh, and carrying that tradition on in a place that doesn't have a tradition like that, or the, because so many departments now, one, they're very, very young. Uh, don't have that traditional background. They're not big like a mobile. But what about that? You know, every place I travel to now, <clears throat> as I'm driving around these cities, I see the four-story multifamily, the five, six-story office building, the five-story medical building, the four- and five-story hotel. So everything Anthony just said is awesome, but now we got to take that and apply it to the three-station. We've never ever had a fire in a mid-rise because we just got these bastards of two years ago we have our technical <laughs> our technical um you know little drawings but that instilling that next phase that instilling of looking at the hydrants doing a stretch putting a little hose in the stairway start instilling that with these guys because yes the brand new holiday inn that's five story in your town you may never have a fire but what if and I think that's how I'm always looking, always trying to promote that what if, the what if moments. So I want to get your thoughts being a, you know, a training chief now and some things that you're looking to instill for these kind of incidents. Uh, well, like they say, if you, what do they say? If you fail to plan, you're planning to fail kind of a thing. So it starts off with a good, simple foundational plan. It's interesting, I'm in a district now that they were just codified in 1983. So we're still a very young fire department um, with an explosive growth with an extraordinarily unique set of buildings and challenges in this area that I'm working in now. In light of that, I was talking to one of the senior battalions just the other day, and we were talking about alarms. This, this, this does relate, I mean, the principle relates. He was talking about the alarms and how they have a bunch of new lieutenants and they just don't understand the nuances of all the different systems and the buildings and, and to challenges and et cetera. And how that was like, man, I, you know, we just need, he's tell, he says to me, we just need a way to, you know, pass that on before I leave. I wish there was a way. And I said, well, there is, I said, what do you think about writing all this down? I said, you, you write, all your uh, methods, all your nuances, all your different approaches to handling fire alarms down. And it's kind of like that, those nuggets like Anthony was talking about at that table. Just from my organization, this, this guy knows these nuances. So now we put that in um, kind of like a playbook 
or like a cheat sheet or some portion of the SOG where it's easy to remember. And it's something that we train these young guys on, you know, moving forward when he's long gone, his wisdom is still there. So I think in relation to uh, everything, when it comes to tactically approaching these buildings, when we're not going to a bunch of fires is, well, what, what preparation are we putting into it? You know, and the, and the company officer, frankly, you guys know this. I'm preaching in the choir. Probably most people in the audience. The company officer is the hinge pin to that engagement and that cultural change. And, and I'll ask both of you guys working in very large cities with a lot of different districts, zones, battalions, et cetera. Were there personalities that really were into the job and the ones that were into their other jobs, right? It's a cultural thing. You know, and so, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and we so, really depend on that 20%. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because yes. the 80% was into the other jobs. Yes. And if we could somehow, it's really a cultural issue. If we can get to the heart of a, of an attitude, maybe that people are bringing to the table of expectation and engagement. Mm-hmm. You don't have to be the, the craziest into the job guy, but you need to pay attention, especially when you move into this boss role. It's extremely important. I put that weight on the dudes that I managed on my old shift because I felt that weight put on me by my brother, Kurt Isaacson, Jonathan Kanzig, a lot of these other guys who were high performers. And they always reminded me how important it is. If you're the boss, you're responsible for three other souls on that rig or two other souls or whatever the case may be. Well, and Todd, I'd like to add a couple things to what DJ said that it, it worked for us. Yeah. Uh, is one is if, if the buildings are new, if you're not used to it, and we try to do it on, on all of them anyway, because it's free reps. If you're if you're doing mm-hmm. an alarm, you still hook up and stretch. You might not charge the line, but if you're going to hook up to the standpipe, you don't usually do it, do it. Get that opportunity to do it where you, you didn't go in there thinking this is a drill. We're looking at no. You got you got hit with an alarm. You got on the rig. You drove there real fast. Grabbed your stuff. You went in there, handled business, and you and you actually stretch it. Make the medical calls because they're going to be more common. Make the medical calls about fires once the medical calls over. You took the elevator up. You took care of the patient. You do your thing. Walk down the stairs. Know where the stairwells are. Quiz people on. Okay, we were in this we were in this apartment before you come out. They should have been looking at it going down the hallway. Before we come out of this apartment, when we take the patient out. How many doors down is it to the stairwell? If we got jammed up right mm-hmm. now, this building, this apartment was on fire, how far to the stairwell? Mm-hmm. Is there an area of refuge? All these things that we can talk about. We didn't stretch lines. We didn't put our gear on. It was a medical run, but we did prepare ourselves for the fire to get guys more calmed down. Uh, training them. I've had very high success of getting people to let us train in their building. Most of them don't let us charge the lines. One does. Uh and they just ask me to stick a nozzle out the window, but the guys can stretch it, charge it, you know, hold lines on the stairs and understand so it doesn't push out under the railing, doesn't fall down the stairs, all that kind of stuff. But you just tell them, man, we want to be, we want to know exactly what we need to operate well in your building if you have a fire. And my guys have trained in buildings yeah. that they then made first do fires in. And they'd stretch there 20 times before that just in drills because they let us do it. And then one thing we found, um, and it was just through the, the the bad experience of it is that if people aren't used to stairs and then they get buildings with stairs and they don't tr- they don't prepare for it, the stairs it, it's a big problem when they have to take them. And we had fires where people yeah. were just getting real slow going up the stairs, 
we'd get upstairs and not everybody was ready to work anymore. We had limited guys yeah. that could just start hooking up and going. So we made it like a like a PT drill. Okay, you guys want to work yep. out today? We're going to train at this building. We're going to put our gear on. We're going to carry everything up like the elevators are out. And then when you get up there and you're tired, you still got to hook up to the system. You got to stretch the line correctly. This is the part we're going to. You don't charge it, obviously, but it got them tired. They're breathing heavy. They're not moving as much oxygen. They're they're just focused on being tired. And they still got to get everything done correctly and get that search the stretch done correctly. The truck guys, they were going up there and simulating. They were going down the hallway. They were giving the same communications on the radio, um, just we're on the training channel to me. Hey, this is going to be a clean hallway. You can apartment stretch. We've got the door control. And we were doing everything that we would have to do with a fire, building, like DJ said, that muscle memory of not just yes. physically doing it, but the mental aspect of this isn't the normal bread and butter two-story house fire. There's other things going into it. You know, is the hallway clean or dirty? Are we stretching? We're going to charge it the stairs. We're going to stretch it to the apartment, then flake it out and charge it. And we're getting that ability to do it and work together doing it. So we weren't foreign to each other on the fire ground when it was one of these buildings that we don't do it all the time in. We took advantage of the opportunity to do it between medical runs, training, just little things like that, challenges of we want to know how long it takes us to get up there and get a line in place on the 10th floor if the elevator's around. You know? Yeah, and I think that's uh, – I love that you said that one thing's uh, uh, Kevin McCart, who's lieutenant in Horry County down there in the Myrtle Beach area, and they just had a job uh, – night before last in a six story and the sixth floor was actually a bowling alley and they made the fire they held the fire in that region of the of the building instead of letting it extend to the you know two other high-rise structures but when you're saying that it's not their everyday fire but they have hundreds of everything from three six fourteen and they're everything from hotels to townhomes the office buildings that they're dealing with, but I, I haven't had a chance to really get into the into the weeds with this fire with him yet. But again, you know, it's a damn bowling alley on the sixth floor, so, you know? so it kind of, and that's why I kind of brought uh -huh. that up with you guys because it's it. And I, and I think we all need to preach this throughout the fire service. Anybody who's out there teaching any given damn day, you know, just cause it's sprinkler, just cause it's new, just cause. Uh, they've got a security cop walking the grounds any given day. Something could happen in that building, whether it's a lightning strike, an arson, an accidental, anything. So I think that's one of the mentalities I always want guys to take out with them. And all the, one of the mentalities I always preach uh, when I talk about training is that it, it, we just don't know. I mean, we were in uh, Spartanburg and we found a block long row of buildings. And in the basement was a six-lane bowling alley. In the basement, non-sprinkler wow. in the basement. <laughs> so, you know, it's just one of those things, you know, I know we're on the subject of mid-rise, but, man, that, those conversations that uh, DJ spoke about and those roundtables with senior guys like uh, Roe was talking about, just so critical to the fire service. And um, one of the coolest things that happens at a lot of these conferences is those after conference conversations, yep. mm -hmm. those after conference conversations, and I know you've been in that, you've been in some of those rooms, right? West been in those rooms. Um, and just sitting there listening is amazing to me of what these guys are trying or they're doing or they're thinking about. Uh, 
I literally had a I had to leave when I left the room to deal with a you know idiot dog situation. I got I texted uh, one of our friends, Steve Robertson. He's done an exterior standpipe stretch to eighteen floors. So, and he's heard of that, it, that other departments have gone longer. So, what it you know, I'm not don't even have this as a conversation, but it made me immediately think: what if it's a mid rise under renovation and the system's down? If it's a high rise under renovation and the system's down. So, and there's no tested theories. That's one of the things that we talked about with Jimmy and one of the things of the group of us are starting to really work on is we better know what the limitations are of a three inch line. How high can we go? What can we pump it at? What are we going to pump it at? And CB's last little text to me was gravity's a bitch though. Remember that. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's hard to pull it. Well, I learned it. <laughs> I, I learned an interesting thing that several years ago I was uh, teaching aside Steve at, at the Orlando Fire Conference. And, you know, I wouldn't believe it if I didn't see it myself. I ended up recording this little bit for him about stretching outside stairwells. And he stretched to the third, I think it was the third, maybe fourth floor. And he says, man, you don't need to tie it off. And I said, what? You're crazy. He's like, nope, you don't need to tie. As long as you have 75 feet or greater of that line, it's going to hold the weight. It's going to move on that rail. Yeah, the water weight. Come off, right? I, I mean, it was like, I don't know why I didn't know this prior to, probably because we just never messed with it. Sure enough, he did that. And uh, it's not an excuse not to tie it off. But if you have a heat of the moment thing, that was always a thing. Well, we can't go over the rail because, you know, that line's going to slip right off. Well, not necessarily if you know what you're doing with it and you get enough line on that landing. I wouldn't suggest anything over the fourth floor, but that was one of the things that Steve showed me. And it was a sidebar. I don't even know if he was even teaching it in Orlando. It was just a sidebar thing that he'd been working with, you know, and I'm thinking of other things as you talk, Todd, I know that you and Shannon and others have really sort of are doing a bit of a deep dive on uh, stream reach on ladder mm -hmm. pipes over pumping certain tips and nozzles. All those are things for people to think that we have a weird setback. Uh, it's an option in our mind. Like if we got to get water somewhere first, unfortunately hitting it hard from the yard kind of got a bad rap in its entirety. Now I'm not advocating always hitting on the outside, but it's something we've always done as an opportunity where I work because of staffing. And when we're talking about a mid rise situation, you have the opportunity to introduce water. I, for one, I don't care where the water comes from. Fast water wins and solves a lot of problems, in my opinion. Yes. And, and, and whether it's extending off the tip of a quint or an aerial ladder with a pre-pipe situation and being rigged up and ready to extend off that tip to get a line somewhere, like in that construction situation you're talking about, or, you know, or maybe getting a water supply on a whole floor that's going on a building under construction and over-pumping a tip and sweeping, you know. Those are the things that it's identified in training. You may or may not ever happen in your career, but it's back here. It's in the bank mm -hmm. as an option. And it's simple. Simple wins on the job. Whatever we can remember simply that we don't touch all the time, I think we're going to end up winning. And we only identify those patterns through training most of the time. Well, I think uh, kind of, you know, going back when you mentioned that, I always laugh about, yeah. I'll be the first one to admit, I look at it on the yard because some of the stuff that comes out is pretty funny. Other times I'm like, oh, my yeah. God, these guys are all going to jail. <laughs> <laughs> it's but, funny. No, I ain't going to lie. That page is funny. It is funny. But 
I always laugh when uh, so when uh, the transitional fire tax studies came out, and you would think that UL and that people had just invented hitting fire from the outside. I mean, it's just right? a overreaction of the American Fire Service to something with some science behind it and some facts and figures behind it is mind-boggling to me that people freak out about stuff like that because we've been hitting it hard from the yard since the inception of the American Fire Service in different ways. Yeah. Now we actually have the science to understand how to hit it from the outside or when to hit it from the outside. Um, For viewers that have never seen the video of the grab, fire vents, you have ignition above the window, the victim screaming for help on the floor, and you guys do what? Introduce water in the compartment and the lady doesn't burn alive. And I loved when that yeah. video came out because I got to throw some of that into people's faces. <laughs> and hey, look, she didn't get cooked because they yeah. put the water yeah. in the correct way. So, that, yeah. with that said, um, Chicago Fire has never shied away from dead gun operations. Yeah. They've done some studies. Uh, they have got, they've modified some of their standpipes. That's one thing. Let me recommend, let me say this now because I don't want guys going out there thinking that they can do this. They've modified a lot of their standpipes with two stream straighteners, and they're hitting fires in these buildings, not trying to extinguish them, but to slow down spread and to right. buy time, right. that reflex time, eight and ten stories high. So wow. that That's gun is a weapon. And again, please don't, as you know, as guys listen to this, they're going to start losing their minds. It's an option. It's a tool because keep in mind, what our standard is from the rig to the front door in a one story or a single family dwelling, maybe one minute. Now start adding that up when we start talking about yes. well holes, coupling drops, hooking up to a standpipe. And just slapping on your damn hose is not what hooking up to a standpipe is. Time you yeah. put your in like flushing the damn thing, making sure it opens, hoping you got water on because all the other, you know, every valve in the place isn't open. You're talking about a good amount of time in some cases for you're actually ready to put water on that body of fire. So I love what Chicago embraces that. They're good at it. They understand the concept of it. They're not uh, – we we did a little bit of the, trying to get some idea about reach with two stream straighteners at a, a hotel we had in Alabama last year. And I was amazed. The force of that water and the amount of water we put in that compartment from – 300 feet away at least yeah it's wild so there are opportunities there but that kind of tails me into this final thing i really want you to hit on i think it's vital we talk about this and really it's not from my standpoint it it is because of other jobs i've been on um but staffing levels fire on full Did you disappear? He disappeared. Let me fix it. <laughs> he, he blue screened. I think it was going to say fire on four, but I'm not sure. <laughs> I got fire on. Uh-oh. Let's see if he comes back in a minute.
He's been having uh, right. computer problems since last weekend. So we got to get him like an iPad or something that works. Yeah, probably just not. <laughs> okay. There he is. <laughs> there, he, there he is. I did get the uh, the all blue screen to death. I knew it. I, I was going to take my laptop over to a buddy of mine who works for Microsoft and uh, <laughs> IBM, and I didn't do it today. I just didn't have time. So uh, I was like, hey, I got over an hour in before I decided to take uh, – it died. It came right back on, but I'm, I'm shutting her down now. So you need an iPad. <laughs> That's what you need, an iPad. Yes. I have an iPad. Well, just use it once in a while. <sighs> I got to find it. The wife uses it now. I don't even know where it is. Or just get so, a computer that's not as old as you. Uh, <laughs> this thing's only three years old. Three years. All right, you're older than that. That's all right. All right, technology. All right, so let me go back to my question. Uh, from a lesser-staffed organization, Chief Stone, your recommendations on best way to manage fire on floor, like a, let's just say fourth floor of a, of, you know, whatever, anything, fourth floor of the apartment building. I, I'm with Anthony in that depending on the situation, depending on the scenario, I'm going to come off my rig off a pre-connect uh, as much as I possibly can for multiple reasons. One, we stretch off the engine often. Two, we know the pump is going to work. Three, uh, it's much more normative. And I know a lot depends on that. What What is your hose loaded? Like, you know, if you're in the triple world like I am, you're going to run into some significant challenges. Or the old engine that we had where I worked, we had a 300-foot line with a bundle on the end of it. We could easily stretch anywhere, you know, we needed. So that is, I think, when you're going over the balconies, you're going up these stairwells, and you have the opportunity, that's going to be your best go-to with a minimum staff company. But I can't overstate the well, it's already been said not to say it again the the ability to recon the situation and call the play and keep it simple um you the commanders coming onto the scene with minimum staff they have to be disciplined to not look at a checklist and staff that first line and you know barring a known location of entrapment and rescue and i say known location because if you don't have a known location, that first line is the most important thing, right? Even in a, a sprinkler-protected concrete building, that first line is extremely important, in my opinion. So we have to staff it. In a two- and three-company world, that could be your first three arriving units of a four-unit first alarm. That most, most of where I work, it's four trucks. Now where I work, it's like five and six. But, you know, most small departments, you're looking at four companies and a chief, Officer mm -hmm. at best, you got to best utilize those guys by putting them on the stretch. And uh, whatever that stretch is, it's got to be simple. So for me, off the rig, over the rail, up the stairwell, pre-connected outside of that, it's working off the standpipe like you would in a high-rise scenario. Yeah, and I, I, want, I wanted that out there because I think that uh, there, there sometimes is confusion out there in the fire service with mixed messages about – uh people and them and us and all this but i think uh I, i'm going to agree with you 100 percent. if we can get that first line into operation barring like you said if i got people coming out windows that's my that's my priority that's my go-to but if i don't have that scenario yeah i agree with you a thousand percent chief that uh 
let's staff up that first line and get that thing flowing and then branch off to start handling all the other fire ground duties. Did we lose you? Is is Rowett there? Uh, well, maybe we lost maybe we lost Rowett now. No, I'm here. I'm here. <laughs> we we need our guy back. We need our guy back, Row. We're uh, we should all be here. I see everybody. Okay. Okay. I, I'm just trying to get in some good light. It's starting to get dark here where I live. And I just got back to the house. So nice, nice. Well, let let me do this. Uh, I think that we we've hit a, a lot more subjects than I thought we were going to hit, which I'm very very excited about. Um, for the guys listening for future, this is a subject matter we're going. We'll probably be visiting again, um, not next month, but the following month, and and uh, keep learning and keep talking about these fires. Understand that whether you're in uh, a city like Atlanta or Mobile or New York. Uh, your city, if you don't have that four-story building or that five-story or six-story, that building's coming. It's just a matter of time and being prepared for it. Like all those guys, I love Errol, the conversation about prepping for these fires and putting a little hose on the ground while we're running alarm bells yeah. and medical calls. So all great, great, great stuff um, at the end of the day. So um, we always close this out, uh, Chief, with uh, kind of final thoughts from everybody. Those are my final thoughts. Uh, I'm going to roll to Rowette, and then you'll have the final say tonight. So go ahead, Ro. Okay. I'm going to agree kind of where you were at for your final thoughts and that the, the preparation, especially if you don't deal with these buildings on a regular basis, of taking every advantage when you're in them to learn about them and have a plan for how you're going to deal with it and then get people comfortable with it. Before you leave, burn it down in conversation. It's not. It doesn't take a long time. And get people involved. What would we do if this, this apartment's on fire on the fourth floor? and get everyone to know the same game plan, especially if it's multiple companies. But take the time to have a plan for these buildings, especially if you don't deal with them a lot. Use your medical calls to get in the stairwells, know where everything is about them. And, and just if you're in them, learn about them and be ready for them because it is coming. And I would add on to that, always ask to use the building. What's the worst people would say is no. Always ask. You'll be surprised at what people will give you for free. Um, and a lot of these buildings – will gladly give you the building to drill on and dry stretch. We used to do the same thing. We said that earlier. It reminded me, we, we did that. It was called the Presidio Drill. That was our 16-story building. Um, so we would get out, and, and I never even asked anybody. And at one point, another battalion said, well, I, did you guys ask permission on that building? And I said, no, we just drill on it. Like, if they don't want us, <laughs> they'll tell us. You know, but always ask. And then I'll finally leave people with this thought. And I say I said this a lot, and it's made more sense in the last few years, and it applies to all situations to include a mid-rise situation. The fire service is begging for a black and white answer. They just hit it hard from the yard. Just tell me what to do, right? Mid-rise, high-rise, just tell me how to stretch. I just need that answer. Here's the deal. We don't work in black. We don't work in white. We operate in gray. So that's what we have to be experts in. But here's the key. When you're mixing colors, don't put too much in there. It's black and it's white, a little bit of both, right? Keep your choices simple. Keep your thought processes simple. Keep your options simple and lean on the strength of your team and, and train and drill incessantly. Like Anthony said, burning these buildings down in conversation in order to hopefully at some point when we're not turning volumes of fires in these buildings, 
we, we're getting the mental reps in to be experts in that gray area. So when the bell does ring, we have some options and things to lean back on and at least get things moving in a direction and operating. And lastly, water wins. Water solves all problems. A hundred percent agree with all that. So uh, everybody, uh, we appreciate as always, uh, we don't take for granted you guys taking the time out of their day or their drives or any of that uh, to listen to uh, us ramble on and basically just enjoy talking about fire. So that's, you know, just fun for us. So we hope everybody gets a little something out of these uh, podcasts and that we keep it a good time level for everybody. So we will be talking it again uh, in the very near future. DJ chief stone. Thank you so much for everything. We appreciate you taking time out. Thank you. Appreciate just it. Hello, appreciate just hello to your lovely wife for me and, yeah. uh, and uh, have a wonderful evening, my brother. See y'all next week. Coming down. Yes, sir. I'll be there. Yeah, I'll be down one day. I'll be down one day. Uh, I literally, because I, you know, again, I work forty hours, guys. Uh, I'll be there in the afternoon, and then I got to go back to work. But yeah, <laughs> thanks for having me. I really do appreciate it. I'm honored. I respect you guys highly, man, and and I love your podcast. I just appreciate the invite. Thank you. See you soon, buddy. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.